ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week is an ETF issuer who, in my opinion, has two of the most fascinating new launches this year, maybe even over the past several years. And if you regularly listen to this podcast, you should already know who this is. It's Nightshares. I'll be joined by Bruce Levine, CEO of Nightshares, who offers two ETFs which attempt to capture something called the night effect. So these only provide exposure from market close to market open each day. There's a, an S&P 500 version and a Russell 2000 version. Now, the idea behind these products has been debated and batted around for years. I kept seeing this pop up on uh, Twitter, and there was a lot of discussion around transaction costs and the best way to go about actually doing this. So uh, huge credit to Bruce and his team. They finally got these things to market. So I'm going to have him explain uh, exactly how these ETFs work, why the night effect has existed historically, and we will also talk performance, which, quite frankly, has not been great thus far. So Bruce can explain what's been going on there. And I should note, if you're not familiar with Bruce, we're talking about a true ETF pioneer. This is a true industry veteran, and we will talk more about his background as well. Also joining me this week will be Peter Belopetrovich, Vice President of Business Development at Innovative Portfolios, who back in March converted two mutual funds into ETFs. They now offer the Dividend Performers ETF and the Preferred Plus ETF. So we'll get the background on why they made those conversions, and then we'll certainly drill into what these hold. I would say these aren't just plain vanilla dividend and preferred securities ETFs. Both of these offer a little special sauce, which I think might surprise some people. So certainly stick around for that conversation. Now, to start this week, I have the one and only Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify, on the line with me, who is uh, fresh off of a nice late summer trip to London. Uh, I was very jealous in all the uh, pictures Todd was posting out on Twitter. But we're going to discuss the pending ETF entrance of Morgan Stanley. So let's do that now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 800 billion, I think we have to say that again, 800 billion dollars and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, so you were uh, in London all last week, correct? I, I was. I took a, a break. Thankfully, the ETF industry took uh, a bit of a pause. I think it was relatively quiet. We didn't have major industry news, unlike the last time I went on vacation six months ago. But yeah, when was in London with family on vacation. Uh, I think you and others probably saw I posted some pictures uh, on Twitter just showing that I was actually trying to uh, uh, disconnect a bit from the ETF world, but still having some fun. And it's great to be back and great to great to see that uh, we've got some new players coming into the space. Well, I'm glad you had a, a great trip, and now we can look forward to the remainder of the year. Uh, I'm sure the news flow won't be uh, as slow as it was last week. And, and look, one of the bigger ETF stories I know we're both tracking these, these last four months of the year is the likely debut of Morgan Stanley's ETF business. And a couple of weeks ago, they filed to launch four ETFs. I know you wrote a piece on this for Vetify. And there, there are actually a number of angles I want to cover here. But to start, do you maybe want to briefly highlight these filings, just explain what these ETFs are, perhaps offer a little historical context as well, which I think is important to this story, and then we can go from there. Sure, and that's right. And, and for listeners that heard me, I think it was about six weeks ago when we did a look ahead for the second or close to the second half of the year. This was what I was watching. Morgan Stanley entering into the ETF market was going to be a big deal. They then subsequently filed. And they would be joining, let's just put some perspective, Morgan Stanley would be joining some other well-established asset managers that entered the ETF market in 2022. We've talked about Capital Group that launched in February and already has $3 billion in assets. I, while on vacation, a piece from uh, that I published uh, tied to DoubleLine launching two ETFs, uh, including the DoubleLine Schiller Cape U.S. Equities ETF, goes under the ticker Cape. Uh, and I also wrote about Newberger Berman that recently entered the ETF market uh, with products like Newberger Berman Carbon Transition Infrastructure ETF, NBCT. But Morgan Stanley is uh, a, a significant player in the asset management world. They're a significant player through the wirehouse brokerage business, which I know we'll get to talk to as well. But as you're right, this is not their first foray into the ETF world. They launched ETFs back in 1996. I won't have you tell the audience how old you are, where you were, <laughs> but I was in college and I had hair back then. That tells you how long ago this is. They launched what were the World Equity Benchmark Series or WEBS. Now, in the ETF space, we love our tickers. We've got SPY, the Qs, the more narrowly focused products like Moo and Tan. I know everybody loves. Webs is probably not rolling off the tongue of many ETF investors, but that's what became EEM, uh, the iShares MSCI Emerging Markets ETF. As, as Morgan Stanley was short-lived in the ETF space, they actually sold uh, that part of the business, the Barclays, for what I believe was actually a dollar. That's what I saw uh, having been reported. Again, I wasn't following the ETF market back in college. And then BlackRock, of course, took over the Barclays business uh, soon after that. So Morgan Stanley has a history in the ETF marketplace. And, and I guess full disclosure, that was my first job. I was a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley 
1997. So I, I honestly didn't even know they had the products there because financial advisors didn't offer ETFs the way they do today. So times have changed and a lot of, a lot of exciting things happening now for Morgan Stanley. Yeah, that's a nice little uh, ETF history lesson there. And yes, I too was in college with a lot more hair back at that time. Um, so, so talk about these, these four ETF filings. What, what, what exactly are these? Sure. So what they're doing is tapping into the in-house expertise uh, through the ESG, environmental, social, and governance space. I think it's important that we say that, not just ESG, because people tend to focus on the environment, but the environmental, social, and governance space through their Calvert business. So Morgan Stanley bought Eaton Vance in 2021. That business included Calvert Research and Management. And what they're doing is launching four, or among the filing includes four index-based equity ETFs. Three of them are tied to the firm's, being Calvert, the firm's responsible index approach. Uh, they've got a, they'll have a large cap, a mid cap, and an international equity one. And then there's a fourth one that is a, a bit different. But I'm focusing on those three just because they're not new. Uh, in the mutual fund world, uh, Calvert has a significant index uh, ESG presence. The large cap product, again, these products, these ETF filings don't have tickers. So that's why I'm referring to them as the large cap, is likely to be a clone of the $4 billion five-star Morningstar rated mutual fund that, that trades under, or that I guess is available under the ticker CISIX. That charges 24 basis points. There's an international equity index-based product that has about 700 million in assets. It's four-star rated. It charges a 29 basis point fee. I'm citing the rating uh, in part because one of these products have been around long enough. People can do their homework and understand what at least the index behind these products, how they, what, what's inside them today, but also to show these funds have performed well. Uh, I'm sure the audience knows Morningstar's star ratings is based on past performance versus a broad universe. Four and five star mutual funds means that the strategies have worked out relatively well. All right, Todd. So you probably know what I'm going to ask next. But uh, look, Morgan Stanley entering the ETF space with an ESG focus was a little bit uh, eye-opening to me because I look at ESG and, in my opinion, there does seem to be a lot more scrutiny around the space this year. We've talked about it on the podcast. And not to mention, you look at the flows into ESG ETFs, those have fallen off this year. Do you like this move? Do you like Morgan coming into ETFs on the back of ESG? Well, I like Morgan coming into ETFs because that's where the money has been going into. And I like them leveraging their expertise through Calvert because that's a brand that is well-known within the RIA community that focuses on ESG. A lot of advisors have built strategies using Calvert mutual funds, both active as well as index-based products. I like that they're leading with what they're good at and they're known for, as opposed to joining the, and they may do this, join uh, the party of asset managers entering in with active products that people might be familiar with, but aren't as comfortable um, using in the ETF wrapper. Calvert's just a strong brand. People are familiar with it. And yes, there's more scrutiny uh, on ESG in 2022 than there was in 2020 and 2021 when we saw the products gain more assets. We saw 
larger flows in 20 and 2021, but there's still some money coming into these products. And it's very concentrated in the ETF space. You've got iShares being the leader in that space, and they use MSCI, which primarily, which is a well-known index-based provider. I think Calvert uh, is is going to be able to hold its own um, and break through for folks that are continuing to build portfolios. This is still a really small space. I know it gets a lot of attention for the right reasons, uh, but it's still a relatively small pie of assets that is potentially likely to grow over time, even if it gets more scrutiny and even if we see people launching products that are the antithesis of ESG. Yeah, I guess I just feel like it's so uh, difficult to differentiate in the broad ESG space. But to your point, maybe the uh, the Calvert brand can do that for Morgan Stanley. Now, I guess I'll contradict myself a little bit in that if I were Morgan, I would enter ETFs with a lineup of core plain vanilla ETFs, uh, which obviously you can't uh, really differentiate there. But then what I would do is also lean on some active products because I feel like the one big advantage Morgan has is distribution, which I I do want to talk about. But I I just feel like they could have a lot more success in plain vanilla and uh, and certainly in active than ESG. But again, maybe I'm just too biased here. Everybody knows sort of my my high-level view on ESG. I guess we'll see. Do you expect them to get much more involved on the actively managed side? I do. I think they've got... uh a lot of great active strategies that they have in-house, both from the Eaton Vance acquisition that we mentioned earlier and that they have historically. I think this is the beginning of Morgan Stanley's entry or Morgan Stanley's presence in the ETF marketplace. I think they are a significant player. Uh, They've got the scale. They've got the expertise that they brought in. Um, I I think they're going to be a player to watch the same way that we saw J.P. Morgan enter the ETF market, and a few years later, we've seen them have success. Morgan Stanley is another one of those large asset management and large financial services companies that I think can prove themselves. You, Goldman Sachs is another example of that. Now, those two firms is, you know, followed a path similar to what you were talking about. They, they currently have low-cost index-based products. They currently have actively managed products, but they also have uh, index-based strategy as well. And they also have an ESG presence. They just, I think they don't have Calvert's brand to be able to lean on, which is something that I think Morgan Stanley can be able to differentiate themselves. And I think we're going to see the Calvert brand and how they're highlighting these probably it's their name Calvert products. But I think we're going to see uh, at, at conferences and advertising and marketing, it's going to be leading with Calvert ahead of Morgan Stanley. Yeah, I think your JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs comparisons are, are perfect comparisons, because both of those companies, obviously very strong legacy brands, sort of the blue bloods in asset management. I mean, you look, JP Morgan is, I believe, the seventh largest ETF issuer, something like over $80 billion in assets. Goldman, I believe, is 14th with over $25 billion, but both came in later to the ETF space, and they've still had a lot of success, and I, I think that's what we're going to see from Morgan. Um, I, I mentioned distribution. Just like with JP and, and Goldman, I, I think that's the game changer for Morgan Stanley. I, we, we always like to say distribution is king in ETFs, right? And Morgan clearly has that. Do you want to explain that angle, why Morgan Stanley is so well positioned here? So, sure. And I think they are over the longer term. But I, I think there's a lot of attention on, or there will be a lot of attention on Morgan Stanley 
launching ETFs that will be available for advisors under the wirehouse of Morgan Stanley, as well as advisors that clear through Schwab and TD Ameritrade or that work at Wells Fargo or, or UBS or other brokerage firms. And so I, I think Morgan Stanley is going to treat these products like they do other products uh, to make sure that they're not putting their thumb on the scale. And so that means the products will need to have a certain minimum access under management. They'll need to have uh, a long enough history in order to get through the, the so-called gatekeepers that allow products to be approved and used on the platform. So I think they'll get approved on the platform because I think there'll be the ability to do due diligence. But I don't expect we're going to see significant money being moved in from uh, because he's pro- on on day one or day thirty or day sixty, because these products are now available for the advisors that work in Morgan that, that work in Morgan Stanley. I think that's a long term trend. It's going to benefit, but I, I just think Morgan Stanley wants to do this right, and they know that there's going to be more attention on these products. And we've had there's a long history of of brokerage firms getting fined by regulators for for not putting the client first. And so I think they're going to do this right, which is why I'm happy that they're focusing on Calvert, which is well-known in the RIA community, and they're not leading with the Morgan Stanley name, even though some advisors uh, and probably more that are listening to this will know that Morgan Stanley owns the the, the products or runs the products that are behind Calvert. So I think this is a long-term trend, but I think Morgan Stanley is going to be a big player in this space because they've got the scale and resources to tell all advisors about these products, not just their own in-house uh, personnel. Yeah, no, look, I agree. I think, no question, Morgan Stanley is going to do this right, but you bring up a good point in terms of the regulatory considerations and potential conflicts of interest intra-firm. But again, that said, they have a, a, an army of advisors. Uh, they have a robust model portfolio business, and so maybe they'll slow play that a little bit, but ultimately... I think having those various distribution channels, they're going to lean on those pretty hard. And uh, and that's kind of what we saw, again, from J.P. Morgan and, and Goldman Sachs. And over time, I think we're going to see the the Morgan Stanley advisors really adopt their, their own ETFs. Um, Todd, you know, this is a little off topic. You were mentioning some of the minimum AUM requirements and, uh, you know, having a long enough history in terms of the due diligence process for an ETF to be on the Morgan uh, platform. One thing I've heard from countless ETF issuers over the years, especially smaller issuers, is that the Morgan Stanley platform has been notoriously difficult to get approved on. So, so in other words, Morgan has supposedly put up some pretty tough barriers to allowing uh, other ETFs on their platform. I- I'm just curious, have you heard that at all? And do you think Morgan entering ETFs uh, makes that even more challenging? for their competitors now? So, I, I, I mean, I've heard lots of things within the industry, and I think smaller issuers uh, face challenges in trying to grow and get awareness on their products, and the due diligence process takes a look at not just the ETF, but also the firm behind the ETF, and so a, a well-known player within the space. Uh, you know, iShares launching a new product, or Vanguard launching a new product, it is easier for those products to get approved on the platform because of their history, uh, the, the, the overall firm's history within the ETF space. I think 
new entrants uh, it takes time to build or to provide education about. I don't think this is going to hurt them um, in that I think that these products are going to get online like every other product. I think there's just too much scrutiny as it relates to this. And I think Morgan Stanley is a relatively conservative firm. Uh, the, the broker side, the folks that are doing the ETF due diligence are relatively conservative. I don't think this hurts them. I don't think it helps them necessarily other than there's now more products that are coming that are coming to marketplace. But I do think we're going to see all pro- you know, the products that hit a certain asset management threshold. I don't believe if products need to hit an asset management threshold. In my former life, when I was at CFRA, we railed against uh, people who were holding out until an ETF hit a magic hundred million dollars of assets under management or a three-year history. We don't. I don't. I still don't believe that. Even though I've changed to Vetify, we we cover products that come out of the gate. We think they're worthwhile of investor attention, whether they're large or small firms. But I don't think this changes it. I understand why it's a question. I understand why small asset managers may be worried about it. But I think you get approved on the platform when you answer the questions that need to be answered and you hit the certain threshold. And I don't think anything is going to change that. All right. A few minutes left here. <laughs> with, with Morgan Stanley set to enter ETFs, who's left? Like, are there any sizable asset managers who still don't have an ETF presence? I, I mean, I was trying to think through this. If you look at the list of issuers who have entered the space just over the past year or two, you named a few of them earlier. It, it's remarkable. Who's still left out there? So I, two of them come to mind. And, and apologies, if I'm wrong and they're out there, then, then shame on me for it. But one of them is MFS. Uh, which actually I believe launched the first mutual fund back in the 1920s, 1930s. I, I should know this. I'm a former mutual fund analyst. Now, you may recall this because you're an ETF nerd. I say that respectfully. But they were the sub-advisor behind three State Street Global Advisors actively managed equity ETFs about seven or eight years ago. Uh, those products failed to gain traction. This is before... This is before ARK and others made active ETFs more viable and, and, and for something to believe in. And those ETFs were shut down. Uh, so MFS, I don't know if they still, you know, that might have given them cold feet, but they're one that still could be out there to, to launch products. Um, you know, DoubleLine followed a similar path. DoubleLine started as a sub-advisor well, they, they, in the ETF world. They started as a sub, sub-advisor to State Street Global Advisors. They still are with the TOTL, uh, among two other products, before entering. MFS hasn't yet done so, and I'm not aware of their plans to do so. The other one is uh, a Mundy Pioneer, and, and in the U.S., they're, they're perhaps more known for as the Pioneer, which have actively managed tax-efficient mutual funds. A Mundy bought them a few years back. They don't have a U.S. ETF presence, but I do believe they have a non-U.S. ETF presence. Amundi is a European firm. Um, it just seemed that they would eventually launch products in the ETF space, but I'm not aware of them um, doing so. And I guess I'll quickly drop one in. Alliance Bernstein is, is coming in September. So hmm. that I guess they filed. They're, they're close to coming with some with a couple of active fixed income ETFs, but one, am I right? The, the two firms, Amundi Pioneer and MFS, do they have an ETF presence? I don't Please think, and, you know, air. I was trying to think through, too. What about uh, Wells Fargo? 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, uh, another big shop but, out there. Yeah, I, I you're right. They have a they have an investment management business. Uh, they too would have the benefits of the brokerage capabilities. Um, I have memories that they were that the asset management business was was being sold at one point or was potentially being sold, but I lost track of that um, when I left my mutual fund hat on the table when I moved to Vetify or my primary mutual fund hat when I moved to Vetify. But yeah, that's another firm that's out there that that certainly could have an ETF presence. Um, and, and again, could benefit from the, the brand awareness and distribution. So there's far fewer than if we had this, and I think we probably had this conversation a year ago uh, with, the, with the likes of Federated and, and, and Capital Group and Matthews Asia, uh, Alliance Bernstein coming, among others. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Newberger Berman, uh, DFA, Dimensional Funds, obviously a big one over the past couple of years, Double Line, Harbor, it's... Uh, it's just been a parade of larger asset managers entering uh, ETFs. But, Todd, I'm really excited to see how all this goes with uh, Morgan Stanley. Again, I do think they're going to have a lot of uh, success. But just another example of ETFs taking over the uh, investment world, at least in my opinion. Thanks for uh, joining me this week. My pleasure, and good luck with your conversation with Nightshares. Thank you. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Bruce Levine, CEO of Nightshares, who, in my opinion, has two of the most intriguing new ETF launches this year. The Nightshares 500, ticker NSPY, and the Nightshares 2000 ETF, ticker NIWM. These both launch back at the end of June and seek to capture what's called the night effect, which we'll certainly get into. Uh, Bruce is now joining me from the San Francisco area. Bruce, great to finally connect. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Nate. Well, how have the uh, the last few months been since these launched? I feel like I've seen you everywhere, media-wise. I know you rang the uh, bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, what have the last few months been like? Yeah, it's been really fascinating. Uh, you know, this thing we call the night effect uh, was sort of hiding just under the surface of a lot of people's consciousness, they kind of knew that something was going on with the overnight markets, but they never had a product to split it. Uh, so now we, they have one, and we're telling our story, and people are fascinated by you know learning about how much of the returns in markets had come from this overnight session compared to the day session. So it's been uh, really intriguing. I know there are a lot of people within the ETF space who are certainly familiar with your background, uh, but for those who aren't, I, I do want to run through this briefly. 
So you were previously president and chief operating officer at Wisdom Tree for about 10 years. You then sat on their board for over five years, so 15 years altogether. Of course, Wisdom Tree is now a major player in ETFs. Prior to that, you were actually with Barclays and involved from the very beginning with the iShares ETFs. What's that entire ride been like? I mean, you've basically been involved with ETFs from the get-go. You've watched this industry mushroom over the past couple of decades. Now you're here with these NightShares ETFs. What's this experience been like? It's been a wild ride to watch the growth uh, of obviously the product set, but really the use case for the products. Uh, The investors have fallen in love with them over time and developed so many more uses for the products than we had ever envisioned initially. Back when I was at Barclays, we just sort of, you know, thought, hey, the the retail world is very much under-indexed and we could, you know, sort of uh, move into that space, but, but it's gotten so far beyond that. And, you know, for maybe the first 15 years, there was 20 or less competitors. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's just gone very mainstream. You've seen most of the active guys get into the business. And you're certainly seeing all the innovation in asset management happen in the ETF space. So that's very exciting. No, it's amazing. And, of course, NightShares is right there at the forefront of that innovation. Let's talk about the ETFs, and I thought the best way to do this is let's just take this in pieces. I I, I first do really want to understand the night effect itself, which you began alluding to earlier, and and then we can talk about the the ETF specifically, just how it is you're attempting to capture the night effect, and then I also want to touch on performance thus far. So I'll just hand this over to you. First, explain the night effect for us. Yeah, so the night effect is simply the historical tendency for much of the return in equity markets to come in the overnight session, which is buying at the close and selling the next morning at the open, versus the daytime session, which is the reverse. And very interestingly, this return stream comes with a lot less volatility than the day session. So we actually stumbled on this research. Uh, I was working with uh, our sister company, AlphaTrade, on a hedge fund product, and they showed me these numbers, and I really had to keep sort of pinching myself uh, that this couldn't really be happening. And only then did I learn that uh, this had been out there in academia for 20 to 25 years. There have been professors writing about this, uh, some of whom had you know, very aggressive conclusions that you know, the entire equity market risk premium was coming from the overnight session. So when that all sort of lined up, I said, wow, this, is, uh, this, is, this would make for some really interesting ETFs. There's nothing like this on the market. And so that's why we launched our first two uh, in the June, and we have plans for others, you know, down the road. And if you look at those academic research papers, and I, I have read a couple, but I'd love to have you explain what drives the night effect. Why does this occur? It is fascinating because you know there's no one agreed upon reason. I'd say the main reasons are one: there's a timing of news flow argument that earnings typically are reported when the markets are closed and on balance lead to upward pricing of securities. Uh, The other is that uh, M&A news happens when the market's closed, and that's generally very positive for the markets. So that's the the news effect. And then there's a number of structural things that seem to be there. Uh, One is just an institutional de-risking that happens at the end of the day. Um, This can be kind of almost a, a behavioral thing where institutions have uh, this desire to be in control. And if 
the markets are closed overnight and they can't trade out of positions. They lose that sense of control, and so they don't like it. And so they tend to flatten at the end of the day. That's certainly uh, something that happens with market-making firms who are sort of playing inside the bid and ask all day, but not in the business of taking overnight risk. And then there's a lot of other structural things that happen around charging of interest, other capital charges for traders, uh, marks to market, things that happen you know, based on the end-of-the-day cycle. And if you don't hold overnight, you avoid them. So those seem to be the main ones. Um, there is one other, actually, that a very interesting argument, which is that the, the daytime and the nighttime markets both react to macroeconomic news, which makes sense. But it's only in the daytime that you have this investor behavior component with uh, all the day traders and the other market participants causing volatility in the market. That's only a daytime thing. So that's you know an, another explanation for it. That's interesting. No, I always like the behavioral angle, and that one does make sense. And we should also note this night effect, this is not unique to the U.S. stock market, right? This has been observed in something like, what, nearly 25 different countries? Is that right? Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, shockingly universal. Yeah, you don't. I mean, I've been in product development for you know twenty years in the ETF world, and you don't really see many things that look like this on paper. And and you know, I, I just wasn't aware of it. And had I been aware of it at any point along that way, I would have you know argued for launching the ETFs. And without getting into specific numbers, so I get that overnight markets have outperformed daytime yep. sessions and there's been lower volatility. But how do overnight markets compare to just owning the market all of the time? Yeah, really good question. So it depends on where you're looking. So in large cap space around the S&P 500, we found that you were getting over time maybe 75% of the return with about 60% of the volatility. So very much a risk-adjusted return argument for the large cap space. Right? We're not arguing that you should uh, sell all of your you know, buy and hold S&P, um, but to use the night shares as a complement to that. In the case of small caps, it was really fascinating because whether we looked over 5, 10, or 20 years, the daytime return of the Russell 2000 was negative. And so, you know, 100-plus percent of the return was coming at night, and again, with lower volatility. So that one's a, a, an interesting one where you could have a long-term, uh, you know, alpha product, let's call it, um, you know, as a replacement for, you know, a, maybe a larger percentage of your Russell 2 holdings. All right. So the two ETFs, the NightShares 500 and the NightShares 2000 ETFs, are obviously seeking to capture this night effect. And it's interesting. Over the past several years, I had seen all sorts of discussion and debate around the night effect. I, I saw comments back and forth on, on Twitter. So huge credit to you and, and your team for bringing these ETFs uh, to market. Explain for us exactly how you're getting exposure here. How do you only get exposure at night when the market is closed? Yeah, so we have two funds. They, they sit in uh, cash or treasuries of the short-term duration uh, all the time. And then at the end of the day, very close to 4 o'clock New York, they buy futures. And very close to 9.30 the next morning, they sell out. So uh, the, the fund toggles back and forth between being invested overnight and having a cash-like profile during the day. Okay, so it's interesting because one of the main pushbacks I kept seeing to the night effect was people would say, well, yeah, I agree. This is real. The night effect does exist. 
The challenge is actually capturing it. And the thought was that transaction costs would eat you alive. It would eat up any alpha. You just described you know, buying uh, futures at the close, selling at the, at the market open. How big of a factor are transaction costs here? Yeah, you know, we're going to figure that out over time. But for now, we have not seen them to be a big factor. You know, uh, we one of the, the, the two things about launching night shares was, you know, does the night effect exist and can you capture it? And so far, we're capturing it. Um, we're actually so we measure ourselves against, you know, again, the opening and closing prices of the, the main ETFs. And we're actually ahead uh, of the night effect on the S&P mm. and behind it on the Russell, too. So, you know, we're not finding a huge issue there. I think, you know, a ton of the research was done when trading was very different than it is today, uh, both in terms of commissions, spreads, uh, alternative vehicles. So our goal is to give you the best institutional level execution that we can. And right now that's futures. It could be down the road that we use swaps. Um, but, you know, we're trying to squeeze every last basis point out of that process to the benefit of investors. Yeah. And you mentioned capturing the night effect uh, very efficiently thus far. Let's talk about overall performance. And yep. as I believe you're aware, I sort of uh, inadvertently caused a little bit of a stir a few weeks ago when I tweeted out the performance of your ETFs. Uh, Bloomberg then wrote an article on this. That was certainly not my intention. Uh, but, <laughs> but look, if we're being honest, uh, performance thus far hasn't been great. So I, I pulled the numbers this morning. I show that since launch, NSPY, the S&P 500 version, is down over 4%, while the S&P 500 is up a little over 3%. And NIWM, the small cap uh, version, is down 6%, while the Russell 2000 is up 7%. And you look at those, those are pretty big differences, given that these ETFs just launched two months ago. And, and look, obviously, we're still very early, right? So I, I think it's difficult to draw any broad conclusions. I want to be clear about that. But What's been going on since launch that has caused that substantial performance gap? Yeah. So the night effect works over time. It does not work all the time. And that, you know, that's something we've been running into. Uh, we looked, and it turns out when you come out of a very fairly deep downturn, which we had through the month of June, and then you snap back, which we did for the last, let's call it 45 days until maybe recently, um, there tends to be underperformance of the night effect. We have seen that historically. So it's not actually that surprising. Uh, we do, though, think uh, and have seen historically that it tends to mean revert. And so, you know, you've started to see that even in the last few days. Uh, you know, Friday was one of those days where the market opened flat and closed down 3%. It was a, you know, and, and so we avoided that carnage and, it was a good example of um, what happens during the daytime uh, in terms of volatility. Sort of one of the one of the biggest things about the night effect is is really that it calls out how poorly rewarded the day session is, and that's both in return and volatility. And what we found is that there are many more you know left tailed events that happen in the day. Left tail being you know defined as substantially down and. So like, you know, Friday was a 3% down day on the back of the Fed's talk. You very rarely see a 3% down night uh, unless, you know, certainly if, you know, Russia goes into Ukraine or something like that, you might see it. But but it takes usually um, something much more extreme in the night because you're not getting that sort of investors 
selling, feeding other investors selling that you get during the day session. Yeah, and it was interesting because when I ran the numbers this morning, to your point, so obviously the market shot up from about what late June or so, uh, you know, into August, and then we've since had a down move. But here over the past, you know, couple of weeks as we've seen stocks move down, that performance gap, that performance differential between your ETFs and then you know, sort of the underlying benchmark has shrunk, and you know, meaningfully so. So it'll be interesting watching that going forward. Let, let me ask you this: one of the other arguments that I've heard. Uh, around these ETFs, and this has been around forever, I, I think pertaining to all types of strategy, is that if this alpha truly exists, it'll ultimately get arbitraged away. And now that you've packaged this strategy into an ETF that actually contributes to, to the arbitrage, a- any quick thoughts on that? Our sense is it would take an, a very large amount of capital for that to happen. That just hasn't happened yet. You know, until the New York Stock Exchange and the other exchanges start changing their hours substantially, you know, there is this cycle to the market that all those behavioral things we talked about earlier and all those structural things, you know, sort of are, you know, based on this 930 to 4 session. So, you know, um, this has been around for a while. We know some people trade it, some hedge funds trade it, and it still has not been barbed away yet. So, our sense is it takes quite a lot of capital, um, but you know we'd only be guessing at kind of what that number is. Bruce, just about a minute left before I let you go. I, I received a really good question from Twitter, which was whether you've considered launching a day share version. And as I thought about this, you know that would actually be a decent hedge on your business overall. Now I know you mentioned how poor the day session is historically, yeah. but is that something that you might consider? You know, it's interesting. Uh, we have thought about it, and you know, but more as a tactical tool for the market than a long-term play. And, and, and these can be tactical tools, right? They are the only products like this that toggle back and forth. And so there is some, some sense to that. Um, the next one out of the gate is actually likely to be one that uh, leverages up the night session a little bit more, but also participates in the day session. So stay tuned for that one. Um, but yeah, we'll see how this all evolves. Well, again, I'm just really intrigued by these ETFs and and the night effect overall. Congratulations again on getting these to uh, market. Certainly wish you the best of luck. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. Appreciate it. That was Bruce Levine, CEO of Nightshares. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Oh, make me over. I'm now joined by Peter Belopetrovich, Vice President of Business Development at Innovative Portfolios, who back in March, they entered the ETF space with a conversion of two mutual funds into ETFs. So they, they now offer the Dividend Performers ETF, ticker IPDP, and the Preferred Plus ETF, ticker IPPP. Both of these are actively managed. 
both obviously focus on income generation, which we'll uh, talk about. Peter is now joining me from Indianapolis. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Nate. Honored to be here. All right, so let's start with the obvious question, which is why do these conversions? Why did Innovative get into ETFs? Yeah, yeah, great first question to kick things off. So we, the reason that we looked at the conversion uh, was for a couple reasons, some for us personally as the issuer as well as for the client benefits. Uh, so first and foremost, the client stays front of mind. So what we were able to do was greatly increase our tax efficiency uh, as we'll get into the portfolio in a little bit. Uh, there are some things with options that need to be handled a little bit more carefully, but we were able to increase our efficiency that way. We are also able to lower our operating expense ratio significantly. Um, so that was a huge plus for the end client as well. But for us personally, having a track record as a mutual fund, with this conversion, we were able to maintain that track record as well as our Morningstar ratings and uh, as the trend of switching from mutual funds to ETFs, we were able to get some greater distribution, greater marketability uh, capabilities as well. And tell us a little bit more about Innovative. How many other mutual funds do you offer? Who's a, a typical client of the firm, et cetera? Uh, so we started out as an RIA uh, serving retail clients. Uh, started back in 2001 with about $60 million in AUM and uh, some SMA offerings. By 2015, we crossed the billion-dollar mark and 20-plus employees. We created Innovative as the asset management arm for our uh, RIA. Um, so when we came out with the mutual funds and ultimately converted those to ETFs, we also offer still a handful of SMAs as well, and then there's a few other things in the works too. In, just in terms of the conversions themselves, uh, how cumbersome was this process? And I know that you're not on the legal side of things, but I'm assuming most of the mutual fund assets were held outside of 401k plans, which uh, made this a bit easier. What was that process like? It was quite cumbersome. Uh, <laughs> it was. <laughs> and it, it was about eight months for the entire process of the conversion to take place. Uh, lots of legal, like you alluded to, lots of compliance, lots of operations. Uh, for us, there was a couple different ways to accomplish it, but we did a direct conversion, uh, which, not to get too technical, but at the end of the day, we essentially closed as a mutual fund on a Friday and opened up that following Monday as an ETF. Uh, there's some other quirks that we're still working through along the way, which I'm happy to dive further into if you want to, but uh, it, it certainly was a process. Yeah, and, and to your point earlier, just to be clear, you carried over the previous performance track record, right? Which was that was a big part of it. Okay. Yeah, that was a big uh, a linchpin for us because we we were very happy uh, with our three year performance from when we debuted, which was right towards the end of 2018. Okay, so that's a perfect segue here. Let's get into these ETFs. And first up is the Dividend Performers ETF again, ticker IPDP. Walk us through this, which I noted at the top. This has a little special sauce to it. A little bit of special sauce. Uh, steak and potatoes and French pastry, as I like to say. <laughs> but first and foremost, uh, we're pulling from the universe of companies that have increased their dividends for at least 10 years. Uh, that's the Dividend Achievers Index. We had a few other uh, downside risk-related filters, mostly focusing on fundamentals, valuation, and sentiment, uh, and then we rebalance twice a year. So pretty straightforward in that regard. Where it gets a little bit more interesting is, uh, in addition to this, we do an option overlay on top. Uh, we're selling put credit spreads on the S&P, 
this generates additional income, uh, but we're comfortable with that risk-reward to capture the volatility risk premium and in selling these put credit spreads as well. And can you just explain what a put credit spread is for people who are unfamiliar with that? Yeah, so what we're doing is we are selling a put as well as buying one, uh, but the net transaction of it is a credit, meaning that we're bringing cash into the account. Uh, and what we do is we structure these so we're continuously rolling them out in time uh, to, to keep bringing in more income. Uh, it is a bullish position on the overall S&P, so obviously with the base portfolio of buying individual stocks, as well as this bullish put credit spread, uh, we're confident that things will rise in the future. But for the long-term investor, this is a risk that we're willing to take. Uh, we feel like it's accretive uh, to the bottom line when invested over time. What percentage of assets in the ETF is typically uh, are typically allocated to this bull put spread? Uh, so around 20% asset exposure. Obviously, that fluctuates with the market, but that's the goal in this fund specifically. It's a little different for the other one, but we'll get into that too. And how much downside risk is there with this uh, this put spread? I mean, how should investors think about that in the context of the rest of the portfolio? So it does go down a little bit. There is some added volatility because of the options in there. Um, we do capture a bit of the downside as well, but we feel that this is worth it because with doing that, on the broad S&P index, uh, we're long-term. Uh, we believe that we'll be able to figure things out and weather the storm no matter what the markets hold, and we continue to maintain that outlook and feel that this is worth it. And then in terms of the core positions with the dividend uh, stocks, dividend-focused stocks, these are 50 stocks altogether. How much active discretion is there? I mean, is this fully active going through evaluating valuations and, and fundamentals and those sorts of things and selecting those 50? out of the, the NASDAQ U.S. Dividend Achievers Index you mentioned earlier. I'm just curious, talk about the active management component. Yeah, so on the stock side of things, uh, we only rebalance twice a year, so it is less active in that sense. But as far as being active uh, in the way that we're different than the benchmark, we are significantly different. Uh, the way that we screen, uh, the stocks essentially come to us, and what that has led us to is a very big value tilt in that portfolio. So, for example, we have over a a 30% allocation in industrials uh, because of how the stocks come through the screen. But we, we're comfortable with that, again, because of the company's ability to weather whatever markets throw at them uh, and be able to come out on the other side and, at the end of the day, continue to raise their dividends. So we get a, a little bit of a pay bump every year. <laughs> okay, so that's the dividend-focused ETF. Your other ETF is the Preferred Plus ETF, again, ticker symbol IPPP. Walk us through this one. Yeah, so on the, this one invests in preferred stocks, and then we have the option overlay on top of this as well. So first and foremost, on the preferred stock side of it, this is a little bit more active. Um, because of the preferred stock market, it is a little bit more quirky when you start getting into credit ratings, liquidity, things like that. Um, but we do feel much more comfortable navigating this in an active way. Uh, some of the largest financial institutions, banks, insurance companies are the issuers, and we feel very confident in their ability to continue uh, to pay their to pay these dividends that we're investing in. But this one does have the option overlay on it as well. Uh, it is a lesser degree. We shoot for roughly a 10% asset exposure here to deliver that additional income as well. Um, but we we really like the space. 
Peter, just taking a step back, as I think you know, I always like to cover the basics on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Do, do you mind just explaining what a preferred stock or preferred security is? I know there are a lot of different flavors out there, but how do you like to explain these compared to common stock or common debt? Yeah, so they're most commonly referred to as a hybrid security. Uh, they have some attributes of each a stock and a fixed income vehicle. Uh, most commonly, we position it to our end clients as a fixed income uh, vehicle for them to gain a little bit of additional yield. Uh, I would never position a fixed income security, uh, excuse me, a preferred stock as uh, an equity security. I, I would never position that as growth. So we most commonly use it as a fixed income exposure for people looking for a little bit more income. Yeah, and in terms of that portfolio application, let's talk more about that because I, I've talked a lot about dividend paying equity ETFs on the podcast over especially the past couple of years and, and how I believe investors really need to think of these as residing in the equity sleeve of a portfolio. These, these aren't fixed income replacements, in my opinion. But to what you're saying, it sounds like you view preferreds a little bit different, that they may be a better fit for the bond sleeve in a portfolio. Do you want to just talk about how you view both of these in terms of portfolio application? Yeah, it's a fun back and forth. Um, I think from you, you have to look at it from the end goal. And so if someone's looking for something that yields a little bit more income, uh, obviously rates are rising now, but tougher income environment for the last 10 years or so, I, I think that makes most sense for them. Now, where the fun part comes into play is they do have a bit more correlation to stocks than to the fixed income market. So from that perspective, I could see someone considering them from a diversification perspective uh, on the equity side of things. Um, but when you look at the yields, you look at the coupons, uh, you look at the capital structure of the companies that issue them, I think it makes most sense as an equity when you're looking at it from the issuer perspective. Um, but I, I say that with the understanding that there is a... Uh, a well-known investor by the name of Warren Buffett, who also used uh, preferred stocks as a way to create his position in uh, Oxy most recently. So I, I can see both sides. All right, Peter, before I let you go, uh, I, I want to ask you a question. I ask all new ETF issuers, what's next? What's next for Innovative? It doesn't sound like you have any other mutual funds to convert. So what, what might we expect moving forward? Yeah, no other mutual funds to convert. We're continuing to build out the product suite. Like I said, currently we have uh, a handful of the SMA offerings, the two ETFs, and a private fund. We also have a USIT uh, that's in the works. And then uh, we're always looking for innovative solutions for intelligent investors. So we'll continue to build out that suite in the future. So stay tuned. Well, Peter, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, congratulations on the ETF entrance. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week. Appreciate it, Nate. Thank you, sir. That was Peter Bello-Petrovich, Vice President of Business Development at Innovative Portfolios. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Pacer. If you would like to learn more about Pacer ETFs, you can visit PacerETFs.com. Next week, which uh, follows Labor Day, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing yet, but I will be back here in studio, so uh, stay tuned. Until then, have a great week, everyone.